Jewu chefs, as well as thousands of restaurants, will tell you that the hottest name in hand-forged Japanese-style knives at an affordable price is Forged to Table. The company was founded in 2017 by Johnson & Wales alum Noah Rosen when he was still a student, dedicated to the pursuit of the perfect knife for his peers, industry chefs, and home cooks alike. His guiding motto was and is uncompromising quality at a fair price. Though Noah is no longer a student, he is still dedicated to that same pursuit. His flagship blade, the 8-inch Kyoto Chef's Knife, was developed a cult following among kitchen professionals across the country. Jamie, you have a uh, personal story about Forster Table. What is it? Yeah, so while I do love their Kyoto Chef's Knife, I actually want to talk about the, the bench knife. So you might think it's a normal bench scraper, but it is not. It's actually a bench scraper that has almost a blade on Super it. Super sharp. And yeah, it's really awesome. We were making potato gnocchi the other night for dinner and we were using it to cut the gnocchi and then to, and it cut beautifully, and then to scrape the table clean. It was amazing. It has a beautiful wooden handle. And like I said, the edge is almost like a knife itself. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, I feel like the knives are great. And they speak for themselves, but like they some do. of the best things that they make are their accessories, which I know is like maybe not the biggest endorsement, but for me, it's actually like huge because you're right. Scraping the table after making gnocchi <laughs> or fresh pasta or even like kneading dough or something right? like that. If, yeah. you have, if you have a really crappy bench knife, it is, it is not even worth it. This knife does all of that. It's, it's, I call it a knife because you're right. It has an edge. It has an mm-hmm. edge. It's super unique. That's why I like it too. <laughs> you can order your own forged to table knife whichever model or accessory from the spectrum of choices that fits your kitchen needs right now at forgetotable.com. And get ready. Culinary Now listeners can enter the code CULINARYNOW, that's C-U-L-I-N-A-R-Y-N-O-W, with their order to receive 15% off their purchase at checkout. Holy moly. Holy moly. 15%. That's good. that's That's a win. Like when I, that's, I, my, I, I do like a score, like, yes, score. <laughs> uh, Forge Table Knives are also available at the uh, Providence Johnson & Wales Student Store. But if you are a go-to store type person, which I am, but you will I, not. I'm not, but. Yeah, I, 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 I'm kind of old school like that. I don't know why. Uh, but if you are a go-to store type person because you want to see the knives, you want to feel them, I get you. But let me tell you, this is one time order online using our promo code culinary. Now you will get the discount 15% only online, not at the store. You can try to tell them that you're a culinary listener at the bookstore, but I don't think it'll work. Um, I don't think so either. Yeah. But while you're online ordering your knife, be sure to follow at Forge to Table on Instagram. They share great recipes from their test kitchen. It also will keep you in the loop on exciting new knives and kitchen gear accessories. Plus, they do have some giveaway opportunities on their social media. Forge to Table is proud to support the development of new and aspiring cooks and chefs everywhere and to join in the effort to create a better industry for us all. Jamie, did I tell you real fast breaking news? I don't know if you if you if you heard this. Tell me. Uh, the owner, founder, Forge the Table Knives, Noah Rosen. He's going to be joining us on the podcast in July. Oh, that's uh, amazing! I cannot wait to hear his story. I know, I know, and uh, I am excited to get him on because we've had to p- postpone at least four times. Um, but I think his story about student entrepreneurship 
creating a company from the ground up is going to be in, in super inspiring to all those who listen. So uh, sometime in July, early August, you're going you're gonna to see that episode drop. So please uh, keep an eye out for that. Welcome to the Culinary Now podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Schick. And I'm Matt Britt. And today we're talking all about food and beverage pairings, which this time of year is perfect for this topic. It's getting warmer. We're eating outside. We're probably having some cocktails on a rooftop somewhere, or at least I'm secretly hoping. And today we're joined by Manny Gonzalez, and he's going to talk to us about these food and beverage pairings. So Manny, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for, for having me on. And, you know, it's summer and it's beautiful and beverages and food and summer is a beautiful thing. So yeah, it's a perfect pairing. So before we get started and dive into our topic today, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned, Jimmy, my name is Manny Gonzalez. I work uh, with a wholesale company in New England called Horizon Beverage. Um, spent many, many years in restaurants, but really now kind of focus on education Um on sales. Uh, I focus specifically on French wines, Spanish wines, or Iberian wines, wines of South America, and sake as well. Uh, but you know, ran beverage programs for many, many years, ran whiskey programs and cocktail programs and beer programs. So um, yeah, it's all, I enjoy it all. Manny, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time today. And I, I was hoping that we could start the episode going back to the sort of your interest in education and providing just a few basics, kind of like a pairings 101. Like what are some of the things, if you have no clue how to pair food and beverage, whether that's wine, beer, sake, liquor, whatever, what are some of the best practices, some of the things that a beginner should know? Is there any like basics? Absolutely. I would say, well, first and foremost, your palate is your own and, um, you know, really trying to find things that you enjoy, but maybe stretching outside of the bounds a little bit. I think it's a, it's an important way to build your palate, but I think really stepping back and thinking about where the food comes from. Um, you know, if it is uh, Latin inspired, if it is uh, Mediterranean, Italian or Southern French, uh, if it's Asian food, where in Asia is that are those flavors coming from and start to think about what would they drink in those places? Um, because ultimately when you're looking at great wine regions, like let's say Burgundy, for example, you know, they've spent, you know, where they're dealing with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay as the main varietals, they spent you know, hundreds and hundreds of years with specific wine and specific food and flavors and what works well. Um, you know, and are those the best pairings? I mean, it's always subjective, but I think that's a good way to start. Where's the food coming from? Where, where are the flavors that you're composing as a chef? Um, and what would they drink in that area? So Manny, would you say that it's, it's as a safe bet, if you're eating French food, maybe look for a French bottle of wine or if you're eating Spanish food, maybe you're like a Tempranillo or something from South America, like a Malbec. Would you say like that that's a pretty safe place to start? And from there, you can kind of expand a little bit outside, you know, your comfort zone and the comfort zone of the region? Absolutely. So let's say, for example, we'll use, um, we'll use Italy, I think, as, as an example, just because I think it's, 
it's a cuisine that more people are familiar with um, and more people are familiar with the wines. They, they may not know what Chianti is, but they know it's Italian, right? So let's say you're having a risotto, which is something you typically find in Piemonte in the northwest of Italy. Um, but starting with something Italian is always going to be maybe not necessarily the, the most ideal pairing, but it's a very safe pairing to do. It's something that would make sense. So getting a Chianti Classico, which is, you know, from Tuscany, different um, culinary history, different types of food, but there's going to be something about the, they would, the term they would use for wine is terroir, which is the, um, the soil content, the climate, the slopes, all these different things that make these wines special and um, make them unique into what they are. There's going to be some similarities that, that could work quite well. And I think it, it's a more comfortable pairing. Okay, well, I know this is Italian. I love Italian wine, or I know a couple of Italian wines. I know like Nero Avola from Sicily or whatever it may be. Starting there is a really simple way to do it. And then, you know, when I started studying wine, I would oftentimes go to the store. I didn't really know much about the regions. I'd find regions that I didn't know at all. And I would try to dissect the flavor and, okay, what might this climate be? But as you become more... Uh, dialed in to Tuscan food, start to seek out Tuscan wine or, you know, Bolognese, which is Emilia Romagna, that with Lambrusco, you know, it's like super peanut butter and jelly. So once you start to get like, you start to identify the, fl the flavors, where they come from, where they originate, and then you start to seek out those flavors in wine or in beer for that matter, you know, if we're talking German food uh, or British English food, Irish food, uh, you know, you can find really fun, unique pairings, and then you stretch out your palate and you develop a more broad palate and um, it makes you a better taster in the end. That's really interesting. I I love, I never thought about that. I love that you can think where the food is from and go for a wine from that region. Like that kind of simplifies it to a really basic level. And I think that's a great place to start. And then just through trial and error. So thank you. That was that was eye-opening for me too. But I want to talk about some misconceptions. What so we know what we could start to do right, but where do you find people go wrong commonly when they are pairing? Um, for instance, red wine and chocolate. Is that a misconception that it go doesn't go to what that it doesn't go together or that it goes well together? So that's a great question. Um, and I think it, it can be somewhat complex sometimes because, you know, with that example, specifically red wine and chocolate, you know, where does that wine come from? Um, if you're, you know, rich, dark chocolate or even a milk chocolate has typically obviously more um, uh, cocoa butter and usually is a sweeter, you know, the, the sugar is more impactful. Finding a red wine that maybe comes from a warmer climate that is um, maybe a little sweeter is something that's going to pair well, rather than I'll use the example of Burgundy again, which is, you know, the red wines there, Pinot Noir, and it's a very cool climate and it makes wines that typically are very high acid, very lean, not a lot of fruit structure. They are really dry. That would have, uh, I think, a pretty powerful counter effect <laughs> where you get the sweep and all of a sudden the wine tastes super sour, you know, but finding a warmer or maybe if you're going to, if you like Pinot Noir, and, and you want to do Pinot Noir and chocolate, something from California, which is a warmer, drier climate. The grapes, the phenolics of the grape develop more sugar. Um, there's a little more richness and they become more fruit forward. So finding wines that are going to be slightly sweeter 
uh, wines from warmer climates are typically going to be kind of better pairings uh, in that specific example of, of wine and chocolate. Um, some of the misconceptions that I find are when it comes to kind of the, the generic pairings like red meat and, and red wine only. Uh, because let me tell you, Chablis, which is, you know, a steely, minerally white wine from the village of Chablis in, in northern Burgundy, just outside of Paris, is great with a marbly ribeye. And what I love pairing with wine is not so much the flavors as much as the structure. So, you know, when we're talking about the, fu- the fat content of your food, um, what is going to kind of counterbalance? And acid does that. So wines with a lot of acid, that mouthwater feel are really great when you're pairing with food for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, just biologically, you know, that's when your mouth starts to water, you break down fats and proteins. It helps you digest better um, and faster, which means you can eat and drink more, which, you know, for me is always a good thing. Um, But finding wines with a lot of acidity to really kind of cut through the fat and and give kind of more of a clean, fresh feeling. So just one quick example, um, take wines of, we'll stay in France here, wines of the Jura or in Savoie, which are really cool alpine climates. And the white wines there are very high in acid. They're not fruity. They're super dry. And what do they pair with that? Fondue, which is pretty much melted cheese and bread. Um, because that acid just cuts right through the fat and, and it actually lifts a lot of the flavors of your food. So Manny, I, I have something in the misconception world. And I think that like, so this is like a personal story. So like buying like a region, a wine from a region that goes with something you're cooking is, is ideal. If you have time, I don't, you don't know this about me, but I have three very young kids. I have no time. So I'm always about like simplicity and about keeping things that I know will be fairly safe regardless. And there's this, you know, thing out there and this, I think it's true. So maybe I'm wrong that if you want something that goes with everything, you stick with sparkling or champagne. Is that right or wrong? That is the best uh, answer um, ever. Uh, (laughs) Champagne is the perfect, perfect food wine. Uh, Once again, it's high acid. Uh, you know, champagne is a very cool climate. It's a, it's a climate that is very difficult for grapes to ripen. Um, so you get a lot of acidity, uh, you, the, which works with fried chicken. You know, mm. uh, fried trotters is a common dish in champagne. The cheeses are really rich and funky and, and beautifully stinky and creamy. Um, so that's always going to work with everything. And if you were to delve into the soils in champagne, you would, pick up little fossils of like little sea creatures. Uh, so with seafood, with lobster, with oysters, um, the perfect mignonette is actually just take some oysters and put a little splash of champagne on your oyster. After you shuck it, then you suck it and it's great. <laughs> you know, the, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great pairing. Um, I love that. Champagne is sparkling wines, I think in general. And then, you know, they're very universal. So if you want to have dessert, you know, maybe not a rich chocolate cake, but like strawberries dipped in, in chocolate with champagne. It works really well. There's a really beautiful balance of flavors. And what's interesting about some champagnes, depending on how long they age on the, on the lees in the bottle, you know, which is basically where it develops its bubbles in the bottle, the longer it ages, the more of this kind of rich buttery brioche quality you get, but it also get 
a little bit of um, with a handful of producers, like cocoa powder, like you would find on like a, a chocolate truffle. It just smells like like cocoa dust. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think that is the best food wine. Period. Ah, I love that you just said that because I love champagne. I have a shirt on that's saying champagne is my spirit animal right now. Um, I just had some last night, like champagne. I love and sparkling wines. I love them. That and an oaky Chardonnay and a red blend. Those are my top three favorites. I'm real basic. But speaking of champagne, it's reminding me a lot. A lot of people do champagne for brunch or they'll do it like as a mimosa, which I don't love. I like it straight. But speaking of brunch and other meals, what might you pair with breakfast, brunch, and lunch? Because I feel like we've talked a little bit about dinner. Would you stay in the wine category? Would you branch out to other alcohols? Where might you go if we're talking those meals? Well, I would say for brunch, something that works well are our cocktails. I think part of it too, you know, there's the, the, the concept of pairing wine and food, but there's also the concept of pairing wine or, or beverages and moments. And when you think about going out to brunch, um, it is fun. It is exciting. It is a destination. You know, people will, do you have, we have lunch every day. We have breakfast every day, but to go to brunch, it's very different. Um, and so trying something that's kind of off the beaten path a little bit, uh, because you have, you know, a lot of fried foods and brunch, and then you have obviously, you know, bacon and things like that, you know, doing a cocktail that has a little bit of um, a citric backbone to it, uh, something that's kind of herbaceous as well, that's going to pair with with all the different flavors that are going on. You know, you might use herbs in, in the cooking process. And then um, finishing off, and just to tie it back into champagne with some like uh, sparkling water, club soda, because that... First of all, the, the, um, there's something about the bubbles that kind of neutralizes the sweetness. It makes it feel less sweet, but it also intensifies the acidity. So that's something that when you're pairing with food and you're having a lot of rich flavors, something that just makes your palate feel fresh with every single bite is always amazing. I mean, I'm just describing in my head a mojito, uh, but um, like that at brunch is great. I mean, Bloody Marys are always super fun. You know, and once again, we're talking tomato juice and tomato juice is, you know, highly acidic, um, even though there's a lot of viscosity to it. There's a lot of acid. So once again, you're cleaning your palate with every single every single sip. Um, and for me, that's always an enjoyable way of doing it. Manny, you mentioned sparkling water, and I wonder if you can speak a little bit to something that's very much a trend. I mean, I feel like it's more a trend now than it than it has been, although this is something that's not new to non-alcoholic pairings. And I feel like we see a lot of these now, like whether you call it a mocktail or now you go to some high-end restaurants and they have like an entire juice menu, which, you know, a few years back, my wife and I went to Noma and she was pregnant. And I'm actually very thankful that they had that pairing because like she was unable to participate in the wine. So it, is this a trend that you see moving forward? Like what, what's your take on non-alcoholic pairings and their viability when it comes to dining out or eating good food. I, I think it's a, I think it's an important trend to happen. Um, you know, the reality is that there are people that, that struggle with, with alcoholism and um, it makes it very challenging to go out and to be kind of part of that party because part of going out and getting wine and getting cocktails, you know, is this kind of sense of celebration and, and connection. You know, we got to get drinks together. 
um, you know, you, you go out to brunch together and to have something that feel it's not, I mean, when I was in the industry, mocktails were pretty much just orange juice and soda water, you know, with some grenadine and that was it. Um, so I think, I think it's an important, uh, movement within the industry. And, you know, the the reality is you don't always have to imbibe to, you know, have a great time and enjoy the pairings. So I think they're, I think they're awesome, you know, and I think sparkling water, I mean, I just want to tie back to that real quick. I don't know if you have this experience, but I do a lot of, um, bike riding. And when I get off the bike after a long ride, there are two things that I want. One is beer, uh, just because it, and I think it's the carbon carbonation. It just fills your palate and you kind of feel like almost every single part of your mouth is full with liquid, um, and sparkling water. If I don't have the like, or sparkling water or both, you know, and it fills me up. I think it's probably the gas. So actually you feel like you have more substance to it. Um, and it's much more refreshing on a hot day after a long ride, uh, drinking ice cold water is, it's not as enjoyable, you know? So, um, I think there's something to sparkling water in general. That's kind of magic to our palates. No. And and as, as a fellow cyclist, I can agree with you that beer is literally the best thing you could ever have. And and it kind of defeats the purpose of going on a long ride or makes it worth it because you get both. Um, but you did mention like you can, the benefits of having a non-alcoholic program or really exploring that trend. And I feel like that kind of goes hand in hand with chefs really diving into the whole fermentation thing and being able to extract some of these really more unique flavors from exploring fermentation and getting some of those non-alcoholic sides of it to really develop the profiles of these beverages, expanding them from what you described as basically like a fruit punch that you would get when you went out to drink or went out to uh, have drinks with friends. So um, I can kind of see those going hand in hand. I, I don't know how important is sort of the fermentation side of it for the non-alcoholic world. You know, that, that I'm, I, I'm not sure actually, but you know, what, what I think is interesting when you uh, just describing like how a lot of chefs are approaching food, you know, the way they're able to extract flavors, they're using more, more acids in cooking, more vinegars in cooking, um, rather than just like, you know, vinegar in a salad, but, you know, and sometimes I was actually at a, a restaurant in, in the Cape. Um, I was doing, a, I won't say the name of the restaurant, but I was doing a wine dinner there. And when I tried the food, the food was delicious, but didn't work with the wine that they had paired because there was a lot of acid in the food. Um, and the wine had a lot of acid and it was just a little too intense. And I thought to myself, this would be much better with beer. And I think actually, you know, a lot of chefs, because when you think about, and, and you guys would know more than I would, but uh, just from my memory of working in restaurants, you know, when you're done working the line, you're not going to want to sit with a glass of wine. You want a beer or, you know, something stronger. Right. And um, then I think you become accustomed to, to these flavors that, oftentimes require more complex flavors on the plate where a great wine and food pairing is honestly just like a steak and, and a good bottle of wine. And that's like, you can't go wrong. Um, like I thought that dinner, this would have been better with like sake or something like that. Like this chefs are pulling more umami. They're much more experimental with what's on the plate rather than traditional, you know, European cooking, which, you know, maybe was the focus, but people are getting more Pan Asian food where they don't drink wine. Uh, where they drink beers or they might drink cocktails. 
um, or flavors from, you know, South Asia, from India. The spices don't always, they can work with wine, but they don't always work with wine. And so the, as the, the plate becomes, I think, more intense in, in terms of the palette of flavors that the chefs are creating, which is brilliant, um, it's, it's better, I think, to look for the alternative pairings you know, which makes them at the end, I think, more fun. You know, when you see a young chef that creates some, you know, beautiful masterpiece with all these different complex flavors from the globe rather than one area, you know, it's hard to put down what bottle of wine am I going to have with this? Like that would be better with a cocktail or, you know, some kind of a, or, or a mocktail, something that's, that's an alternative to that traditional pairing. This is kind of a perfect opportunity for us to talk about some really unique pairings that you've come across or that we wouldn't think of or you want to try because I'm all about unique desserts, crazy flavors, some savory in there. I'm working on one right now that's got capers, like who thought capers could be in dessert? I don't know how it's going to come out. So can you talk a little bit about some unique pairings you've come across or you're really interested and intrigued by, whether they're wine or liquor or whatever it might be? Yeah. So my um, favorite pairing and I've been preaching this for the last three or four years, uh, sake and pizza. And I don't mean like an Asian-inspired pizza. Actually, I did an event uh, at this restaurant in Worcester, and we were doing a sake uh, tasting. And I said, just please, for whatever you do, I want a pizza. I want like a basic mushroom or pepperoni pizza. I don't want Asian flavors on it, just pizza. And the chef ended up making this like amazing fried pizza, but then it had like an umami relish on it. I'm like, no, I want like, uh, but pepperoni pizza, mushroom pizza and sake work so well for a couple of reasons. I mean, if you were to break down the, the, I guess the biology of, or the, the, um, if you were to break down like the elements of what is in Parmesan cheese or what's in mozzarella or what's in tomato sauce, there's a lot of umami. There's a lot of natural MSG in these things. and when we're tasting, you know, we all kind of learn the the little flavor palette on our tongue, like sweets here, sours here. Um, and I went through actually a science of wine tasting last year, of course. And the, the presenter had said that that's not true. Like, um, I guess actually that map was developed in like the 1890s by a German scientist who basically just asked people, where do you taste things? And compiled it. And that's where they, they developed from. But um but it's really, I think, where acidity pops on our palate. And with umami, the acid, the salivary glands are activated in the front of the palate. So if you're having pepperoni pizza that has a lot of umami to it, and you're having sake that has, especially if it's a, a, a Junmai style sake where there's less polish to the rice, you get more umami, becomes more, more mushroomy, um, a little richer, sometimes sweeter, that pairs really well and it's such a pleasurable experience on the front of your palate because that's where you start to salivate and then those flavors start to pull um in in a broader way on your on your palate but that that to me is my favorite pairing wow i actually have pepperoni pizza left over in my fridge right now i'm like hmm do i have any sake in our liquor cabinet or should i get some because now i'm super intrigued it's funny i work with this italian specialist and every time i say that he gets so mad. <laughs> he gets so angry. But it is just such a great pairing. It's so funny, Jamie, because I was 
we're, we're going out of town tomorrow, so we're having pizza tonight because it's super easy. And I'm like, we might have to pick up a bottle of sake on the way home because now I'm like super right? intrigued. Like, I think that that's such a valuable thing to say and a tip to give because I think that that's that curiosity is now there. And I think that's going to extend to our listeners. Manny, I, I want to take this potentially in a completely different direction than we already have and, and talk about other types of pairings. Uh, you know, we focus a lot on food because this is a food podcast. But, and beverage podcast for that matter. But are there other, because I see behind you there's musical instruments. Are there other experiences in life besides dining that can be elevated by a beverage pairing? You know, it's so funny you ask that. Um, yeah, well, there, there are a couple things. I mean, first and foremost, uh, moments. I mean, you think about graduations, New Year's Eve, birthday, whatever, like, you know, it may not be champagne, but it may be I've been saving this bottle of wine for this moment. I have a bottle of 2007 uh, Comte de Champagne, which is the kind of the top tier that Tattinger makes. And that was the year my daughter was born. Um, and I'm holding on to that bottle. And when she's 18, you know, I'm going to open it up. And she's not only the drinks, so she's going to watch me drink it by myself. But no, I'll give her a little bit to, to taste, you know, but like, um, like, so we definitely have moments where we're saving, but uh, there's vibe, there's energy, there's personalities, the types of conversations are we having? I think we could solve the world's problem over a really good bottle of wine or a really good bottle of single malt scotch. You might forget it the next day um, if you drink too much of it. But, uh, but I think also one thing I've been doing since the pandemic started is I started pairing wine and music. And so I'll do on my Instagram page, I'll do, uh, music wine pairings. Um, we'll start with the music playing in the background, and then I'll talk about, you know, spend more of the focus on the wine at the end. I'll talk about why it pairs. And there, just like food wine pairing, ultimately we, we're talking structure. Like, you know, if we're, what's the flavor, not just the flavor component of the, the dish, but what what is the physical structure of the dish? Is there, you know, what's the acidity? What's the 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 fat content? Uh, what's the starch on there? And when you're pairing food and wine, traditionally, or if, if I'm like really kind of dial into what I want to pair with a meal, I start thinking, okay, how much acid does this wine have? How What's the tannic structure if it's red? Is it too tannic? Is it going to work well? Uh, what's the physical weight, which is, you know, the alcohol content itself. And so what I'll start doing is, okay, well, this singer has a really sharp voice. Well, that's like acid or like a lemon note. Um, this, you know, the guitar they use is a semi hollow body guitar, which has kind of this punchy mid range. And that could be the tannic structure or it can be an earthy structure. I once heard this singer, uh, what was his name? Shoot. Great singer, uh, Christopher Quinlan. And his voice to me sounded like rocky soils. And it made me think of like the alluvial soils in Argentina. Um, so that's that's one thing that I've really been kind of focused in on. And, you know, that whole concept started when we started bringing wines from Bordeaux into our our, our company, um, which we hadn't had in many years, you know. And Bordeaux is a very interesting region. It's a very classic region, but Bordeaux that people want are really expensive. And it's just it's kind of a nightmare when you're dealing with wines like that because you got to sell them. And, and that's much more of a challenge than people think, but that's the region I started with. I started with Burgundy and Bordeaux to really understand those regions. I thought I could understand the rest of the winemaking world. And I, in, in many ways it was really true. 
but you know Bordeaux is separated by this river, and on the left bank the wines are more Cabernet Sauvignon based. It's more gravelly soils, and on the right bank, like the left bank is Cab, and the right bank is Merlot clay soils. The wines typically are a little more lush; they're a little more fruit forward. And someone asked, "How would you describe these two regions beyond Merlot and Cabernet?" Because what I found over the years, someone that says they like Cabernet, but they have a Cabernet from Bordeaux and they're used to Cabernet from California, the climate's very different. The wines act very differently. I thought, oh, what is this? This wine just makes no, makes no sense to me. So what I said was that the left bank is Led Zeppelin and the right bank is Queen because Led Zeppelin is always driving. It's always a, a you know, dun, 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 and that's the tannin of the left bank. And even when Led Zeppelin matured and became more um, creative and more cerebral in how they made their music, you know, broader uh, sonically um, and had more of a plush sound, it was still like cashmere. It's a great example. It's still da da dun, it's that drive. And when Bordeaux ages on the left bank, they talk about the tannin wine's 30 years old and it still has intense tannin right bank is nuanced. It's layered. It's um, the wines are much more harmonious and queen is always harmonious. Even in the song stone cold crazy, which is, you know, there are all these layered harmonies and that's, that's right bank. Um, and then it just started developing from there. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, champagne tattinger with, uh, um, Billie Holiday, because she has a really nasally playful voice, but it's kind of haunting and really one of the greatest singers ever. And Tatanjay is very, it's a Chardonnay based champagne and it, it's really lean and it's really minerally. Whereas Ella Fitzgerald, which is brash and brioche and has a, she has a buttery voice is like Charles Heitzig, you know? And so then it started to kind of grow from there. Wait, can we talk about where where would Frank Sinatra fall? Because John and I, we are, we we love Frank. Napa Valley. Mm. Napa Valley is a lot of personality. Um, you know, if you listen to Frank Sinatra's voice, he had a really good voice, but from the, in that era, wasn't the best voice. But what he like, kind of like Madonna, wasn't the best voice back in the eighties. But she had such a presence when she sang. Frank Sinatra is the same thing. He had such a presence when he sings. Whereas Mel Torme who I love, the Velvet Fog, would be Carneros, um, which is a little softer. It's a little more velvety. Mandy, you need to create like a map or something because this is so, it's so interesting. And I know we're both like enthralled with this conversation. I know. And I I can't, I'm like trying to think about like, you said about like the Led Zeppelin thing and you talked about how like early Led Zeppelin versus later Led Zeppelin. And I started like, and this is not even, Right, but I started thinking about how when they did different tunings. Like I, I, this is how my mind goes. It's like, like that's not cashmere. It's a different. Tu- it's 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 it's, dag- it's a different tuning. So yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah. So how does that? Like I don't know. This is going way too far down a rabbit hole that I I want to spend. Let's on. Go. <laughs> but but uh, so but I think the important thing here is the fact that the experience is is so important because I I can just remember when we were in my wife and I went to Burgundy or Bone. And we were drinking really, really great white burgundy in a courtyard of a church eating cheese and bread. It was the absolute best experience of my life. And then a year later, we drank the same bottle of wine. And I'm like, it's not the same. It's not the same. It was good. But it's like that experience, that moment is so important to that, to, to, uh, to that pairing. It's just, oh, man, this is, this is awesome. 
It's awesome. Yeah. No, it's, you know, um, so back in 2006, my wife and I were in the Costa Brava in Spain, visiting a friend who had a restaurant out in, outside of Barcelona. And we were sitting in this um, restaurant, having some seafood with this very simple white wine from the Apple. I think it was Importa was the, uh, the DO in that area. And it's something that I'd seen here for $9 a bottle. And it was, I think, seven euro at the restaurant because, you know, it's not the three time markup that you would typically see here. It's pretty much what that wine costs is what you pay at the restaurant. And um, that was, I mean, that was the trip when my wife and I decided, all right, we're going to have a kid. And uh, that was one of the best white wines I've ever had in my entire life. Not only that, there was a waiter that was walking by and <laughs> he had a, a tower of seafood and the um, water, like the ice had melted and the water hit the floor and he slipped. I saw this all happen. And there was another waiter that's, uh, no, he just walked off. Another waiter slipped and just started screaming in, in Catalan. And, and it was, I felt bad for the guy, but in the moment it was quite comical because um, he was totally fine. But just his, his, with so many expletives and the way his hands are moving. And that wine to me is always that moment, you know. Um, I think we capture when we have special wines we, or even, or a special moment, we capture that, you know, and like I'll even tie it to, you know, that um, kind of more pedestrian style wine from California, like the big national brands, you know, like, I mean, I won't say which, which ones, but, you know, the kind of the, the classic that you see in every liquor store that's stacked up a mile high. Well, that wine, you know, is they're well known for a reason. I've actually blinded one of these wines. I'm like, wow, this is really good, surprisingly. Um, but, you know, that could be the moment of two friends that haven't seen each other in many years. And they have a conversation over that bottle of wine. And now that bottle of wine is part of that moment. Um, and will be the moment of them reminiscing and talking about their children and crying and laughing and all these different things. And that bottle's there to kind of in the center, you know, <laughs> it's like the, the, the mediator between them. Um, yeah, so I like to to your story and being in Bonn. I mean, I would imagine almost any wine would taste amazing in Bonn, you know. And it probably was an amazing wine, but you know, you were more primed for that experience when you're there than. No, I mean, I think the wine we got at just a, a, a little store on the corner, which probably was really good wine, because that's just what happens in France is you find really good wine at like you know the bodega on the corner of like a street. But you're right. I think we probably paid you know under fifteen euros. I mean, it was cheap. But it was the experience. Yeah, and I think that that that's the cornerstone to, to every, and great plating of food, great food in general. You know, it's. I think it's very rare when we have these amazing culinary moments or or wine moments, kind of by happenstance. Like, I we when we're going to that restaurant, when we're going to that brunch, when we're going, or we're going to make that meal. You know, there is a broader connection to to our moments. And, and I think that elevates our, our palate, our flavor. I tell friends all the time, like if you're on a, if you're going on a date with somebody and it's not going well, don't get a great bottle of wine because that wine is not going to taste great. <laughs> you know, just get something that that'll pacify the, the evening and then, and then move on with your life. Well, we could talk to you about this stuff all day long because this is so interesting and there's so many rabbit holes we could fall down. I, I mean, trust me, I get lost on the internet in random rabbit holes all the time. But to respect your time and our listeners' time, 
we are going to start to wrap it up. So I want you to tell everyone where they can find your podcast and your lives if they want more information or want to check out any of the information you've already put out there. Awesome. Yeah. So my podcast is called Bottom of the Bottle. You can find us on Spotify. Um, It's basically my colleague and I drinking wine and it's not just us drinking and talking about the flavor of the wine. We really try to dive into the region, um, the history. We did a whole podcast on phylloxera, which is that parasite that killed all the insects or killed all the grapevines in Europe. Um, And our whole point was this was beneficial to the wine industry. Um, And uh, I want to have one on prohibition and what we got wrong about prohibition and, and why there was actually a benefit to it. Um, at least in terms of regulation uh, for for the alcohol industry, which there was none before. So we get in, involved into to the, some of that history. Um, you know, if you want to talk crazy, crazy wine history, the Coteron with Chateau of the Pop is, I mean, it's Knights Templar, it's intrigue, it's popes, it's, um, you know, kings. It's, it's really incredible. Um, so we do a lot of that. And we start every episode with music that relates to what we do. So that's the bottom of the bottle. And then my uh, Instagram is life by the drop 2112. Just remember life by the drop by Steve Ray Vaughan and 2112 from Rush, their epic song. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's usually where I am. And then driving around Massachusetts doing events. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time thank to talk you. with us today. We we might need to have you back to talk about another topic because you just had both Matt and I just entranced in our conversation today. So thank you so much for spending the time and educating us and chatting with us about food and beverage pairings and all things wine and beverage that we talked about today. Awesome. Well, thank you. It's It was a treat and a pleasure to, to hang out with you guys today. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. We also want to thank our friend Matt Burns for providing all the music for the Culinary Now podcast. If you liked today's episode, leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Your positive feedback helps us reach more listeners. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button to receive updates on new episodes from all our projects. If you'd like to reach out to the team at Culinary Now, please shoot us an email at culinarynowpodcast at gmail.com or connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Culinary Now Podcast. We'll talk to you soon. We're the brave and the bold. And we out.